From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Robert Fly. Robert and I met when we were both speaking at the IT Web Summit Conference in Johannesburg, South Africa in 2011. And I'll never forget this one evening, we must have been 30 feet away from an actual lion eating an actual warthog. I mean, you could hear the bones crunching. Uh, anyway, at the time, Robert was building and leading security and engineering, security engineering and technology teams at Salesforce. And before Salesforce, Robert spent eight years working in security at Microsoft. Today, Robert holds a number of board and advisory roles and is currently building a people-centric solution focused on the human element as a core defense strategy for organizations. Robert, welcome to our podcast. Hey, Caroline. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure to be here. By the way, the one thing you forgot, the thing that sticks with me more than anything about that trip, besides the uh, SensePost team being great, was... Yes your friend at the time that accompanied you yes. leaning over with lions mere feet away from me and you and him <laughs> saying, here, kitty, 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 here, kitty, kitty. And I was like, my life is flashing before my eyes. And I'm like, I don't know why my wife let me go on this trip. Totally. I mean, we're in, we're in an open air Jeep. There's nothing protecting us from these animals. Um, I have never been more infuriated. <laughs> <laughs> Or terrified uh, than that in my life, but it was uh, it was super cool. I definitely yeah. want to go on safari again and and bring my family one of these days. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so, Robert, you've done a lot of really impressive things throughout your career. Can you tell us how did you get into security in the first place? So, I'll tell you how I started, uh, and then there was a little bit of a hiatus in there, but uh, we'll kick it off with how I got into it. So. It was a little bit of a combination of necessity coupled with curiosity. My parents were early on in getting us a computer. You know, we had a 2600 or so baud modem and I was hanging out on BBSs when I was young. I loved playing video games, but I did not have any money to buy them. So long story short, uh, when I was young, I would find ways, this is, I would call this my unprofessional time in security, but I would find ways to break license keys on games uh, so that I could play them. Nice. And, uh, you know, I remember always being super curious about how things work just in general. Um, I remember my mom taking us to Barnes and Nobles when I was really young. And, you know, I'd walk up to the magazine shelf at Barnes and Nobles, pick out uh, issues of 2600, and I would read them front, front to back. And I could never afford to buy buy any of them, but uh, it was great to be able to sit in sit in the Barnes and Nobles in the early days when they were still around, and just read through and kind of let all the security knowledge I could sink in. So you were always super curious, and there was this way for you. It sounded like curiosity plus a little bit of investigation would would basically give you access to things that you might not otherwise have access to. Yeah, I I think I was I was a little bit lucky in that regard, and uh, 
you know, if I, if I think about, and that little bit of a hiatus was, was prior to my time getting into Microsoft where I actually did start off in security. So if we sort of fast forward to my senior year in college, I was uh, an economics major and I was talking to our school's guidance counselor and she asked me, where do you want to work? And I said, I would like to work at Microsoft. And this was 97 or 98 when Microsoft was originally cool. Now it might be cool again, I'm not actually sure. But when it was originally cool, way back when in the 90s, and she replied back to me, well, maybe you should set your sights a little bit lower. No one from our university has ever gotten a job there. And, and I'm talking about, you know, I'm an economics major, but our computer science department at the school I went to was maybe three people deep. And that's students, not faculty, so tiny, tiny, tiny. <laughs> and here I am getting a degree in economics, um, trying to get an engineering job at Microsoft. It was a bit ludicrous and a bit out of the question. And I really had no business in applying, but I had a friend that was working there at the time and I gave her my resume. And uh, she shot it over to the hiring manager. The hiring manager took my resume, um, was reviewing a whole bunch of other resumes, put them into two piles, put mine at the top of the no pile, which I don't mean, I don't know if that meant I was the closest to being a yes or I was the absolute <laughs> top of being no. One, one of those two. But uh, he calls up the recruiter, asks her to pick up the resumes, and she did. So recruiter walks into his office, sees two piles, what, isn't really sure because he didn't just stick me under anything, isn't really sure why there's two piles, puts them together, my resume ends up on the top of the list. She calls me up, sets up an interview, I show up, and the hiring manager is the first interview of me. And he's scanning over my resume, like, like looking at it like he hadn't looked at it prior to, prior to the interview. And then looks up at me, looks at the resume, looks up at me, looks at the resume and says, I didn't want to interview you. <laughs> With sort of this quizzical look on his face. And I'm like, at first, your first reaction is like, oh crap, this is not gonna be good. But I responded back, you know, didn't say that, but I responded back and said, well, I'm here and we've got, already got everybody scheduled, so let's just do this. And his first question, <laughs> Um, he asked me from an interview perspective as a coding question, again, here's an economics major, applying for an engineering position at Microsoft being asked a coding question when I haven't coded since I coded in basic back in like sixth grade. Uh, and I go, you know, I don't really code that much, but I can do algorithms. And if you want me to write pseudocode, I'm happy to tackle that. Oh, by the way, I also hear that Microsoft loves to ask brain teasers. So sort of guided the interview in that direction. Um, he says, sure. And then I go through the standard Microsoft interview process, which is like an entire day. It's like eight hours long. And sort of had that same conversation throughout the day where I kept getting asked, asked coding questions from everyone and kept diverting it back to brain teasers about pirates and gold and billiard balls and dice and decks of card. Um, because at the time, you know, maybe not so much now that I'm older, but at the time I really loved brain teasers. I was pretty good at them and uh, ended up answering some questions that you know the interviewers would say well no one's ever answered this but i'll ask you so it was good you know a little bit after that they offered me a job i started and here i am an economics uh, major working at microsoft as an engineer uh, with a chip on my shoulder and uh, not really knowing how to code and sort of surrounded by stanford yale mit waterloo grads uh, who were either undergrads or masters in uh, computer science but it was fun
That's incredible. I myself, yeah. um, I'm a Berkeley grad with a degree in electrical engineering, computer science, and the brain teaser that I remember being asked doing a Microsoft interview, uh, you may notice that Microsoft is not on my resume, uh, involved a canoe and some dogs, and I did not know how to answer the question. <laughs> um, Robert, do you think that your perspective in economics brought something different to the table. I mean, it sounds like your brain was intellectual diversity in that kind of an environment. I think so. You know, it was actually really funny because I was maybe a year into Microsoft where they asked me to manage a team. And I was like, manage a team? Everybody else is like seven, eight years, 10 years, 20 years older than me. Why would you ask me to manage a team? And I don't know if that meant my coding was really bad. And they were just trying to get me out of that. But, it, and that may be the case. But uh, I think that was, it was just, I was thinking about it differently. I wasn't just thinking about it from the technical side of the problem, but also the people side of the problem. And that, and that goes on, on many levels. It's not just the software building and who are we building for, but also the people who are building it. And you know, what are their goals? What, are their, what would they like to achieve? What would they like to get out of this? Um, in their careers, and how can we try to align all of those different pieces together to be able to build something great? Um, but I think the the background in economics did help help me out there because my focus was on microeconomics, and it wasn't called you know behavioral psychology at the time, but uh, that was a big focus area for me when I was in university. I think I think that's a surprise to people. To be honest, you know, you and I just spoke yesterday, and and I found out I didn't know how you had gotten into the field and I didn't know that you were an economics major and didn't have really a technical background. I think it's surprising to many, perhaps of our listeners that as a person who ran security engineering and technology teams at Microsoft and Salesforce, I mean, some of the really heavy hitters in technology that you came with sort of this people-centric uh, perspective I, I think that's just fascinating. And, and one of the questions that I'm most curious about with regards to your time at Microsoft is, you were there during Bill Gates's Trustworthy Computing Initiative. Um, I think that, you know, from my perspective, as a security practitioner who did not work for Microsoft, you know, a lot of my team members, a lot of folks that I would meet in the industry would say things like, gosh, we would love it if our CEO sent a memo to the company saying that security is the number one priority. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be there at that time and what your thoughts were on why that was such a big deal for Bill Gates and for Microsoft? Sure, absolutely. Would you like me to, I, I'm happy to cover a little bit of the time earlier uh, to that as well. Yeah, let's get the whole story. Sure, sure. So I started at Microsoft back in 98, so I sort of have that, that view of the world. But the Trustworthy Computing Memo came out in January of 2002. But I would say there was actually a ton of interest in security already in the company before that. And it wasn't as targeted, it wasn't Bill Gates' memo, but you know, if you were in Windows or you were in Office, you were probably spending a decent amount of time working on security before that. You, know, you had Code Red, um, I think it was in 2001, you had Ninda, around the same time, might have been 2000. You had the, I was on the Outlook team. We had the Melissa Worm back in uh, early 99 and I Love You in 2000. So, you know, there was, there was interest in security even at that time. I mean, I remember 
being pulled into an all hands when I was on the Outlook team, and uh, Kurt Delbeen was the uh, was the general manager there at the time. And him saying to the entire engineering team, you know, we've got to get this fixed. You know, I have companies calling me and saying we're going to move off of Microsoft in its entirety unless you figure out a way to deal with all these these worms that are going around. And I think that was that was probably ninety nine ish or so. Uh, when that happened, so several years prior to trustworthy computing. Um, and that's around the time I got introduced to security while I was at Microsoft as well. And back then there was a guy, and this is early, early days, maybe 98, 99, there was one or two people in the entirety of Office uh, who owned security. And you can imagine Office is a gigantic group, but there's one or two people that owned it. And they were, one of their jobs was giving security training to all the engineering teams. And it was completely optional at the time, which is funny to say now because it's definitely not optional. Um, and I think when they sent it out to the Outlook team, there were four of us who showed up. And at the time, I remember thinking, you know, after he showed us some demo, I remember thinking he was a magician because he came in and he said, security matters and watch this. And he opens a Word doc. And when he opens it, it must have magically done something, which was a buffer overflow, but I didn't know at the time. Uh, that ran arbitrary code and then this thing popped up and your files were being burned and it looked like something awesome and I watched in amazement. My jaw dropped and I said, that's what I want to do. So I got to I actually started working in security when I was in the Outlook team. I then moved to a sub team of SharePoint and the original office security team and then ended up building a security team uh, through a Microsoft acquisition that was, was built entirely on Java, which was interesting given Microsoft was all C and C Sharp at the time. But when 2002 hit and the trustworthy computing memo came out, um, it was just fuel to the fire. I mean, so in 98, 99, when we had one or two people across office that were owning security everywhere, uh, before the trustworthy computing memo, office had an entire security team of, of many, many people from security engineers to software developers to we had security champions. Uh, we were doing threat modeling. Um, there was a lot of things going on even before that, but when Trustworthy Computing Memo hit, and I can't remember exactly the timing of it, if it was just before or just after, but it was all hands on deck at that point. We stopped feature work, we only, find, or only focused on finding and fixing security bugs for a couple months, you know, we created the security development lifecycle policies, every team had to follow them in order to ship. Uh, we had tools to find security bugs that were being built. We trained all our engineers. And remember, this is back in 2002 when a lot of these things just didn't exist. There were no vendors who were building out any of these things. You know, we created security champion programs. Again, we were threat modeling everything. It was really crazy. It was a lot of fun. It was a great time to be in security. And you have to imagine, like, I'm entering this role with really no or very little background at all. Because there, it wasn't like you took a SANS course and, like, oh, now I know more about security. Like, none of this existed. So the team of us who were working on security in office uh, were basically learning as we were going. And as soon as we learned something, we were relaying that back to the security champions and the office team um, and having them relay that message back to their teams. But it was, it was great. It was crazy. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was definitely zero to 100 real quick. Incredible. I mean, when I hear any organization actually make the decision, we're going to stop feature work for a few months and focus on finding and fixing security issues, I feel like that's when you know it's a big deal, right? I mean, from a budget and a resource allocation perspective, 
that's such a major shift in terms of trying to accommodate a customer demand, a customer need. But I guess if you've got, you know, really big clients saying, Hey, these worms are getting to be too much. We're going to move off of Microsoft completely. Then that's, that's a pretty good reason to focus on security. It's definitely a good reason. It might not have been the right reason to get started. I mean, you would think that there was a little more foresight there, but I think once it comes to dollars, then, you know, absolutely companies are going to pay attention. Very cool. What a neat sort of inside scoop uh, on what really happened there. And then, so eight years at Microsoft, what's your transition to Salesforce like? Why would you, why would you choose to leave Microsoft? You know, it's a, it's a good question. And actually I interviewed, I was about seven years into Microsoft when I started interviewing and I interviewed and got offers from probably 20 different companies um, over a year and a half. And I turned them all down because what I realized was nobody cared about security at the time. Now, now it's a little bit different, but back then nobody cared about security. I certainly didn't care about it at the level that Microsoft did. And I went to one large uh, software company in the Bay Area, I won't name them, and interviewed there. And I went through eight interviews and no one could tell me what the role was. I was everything from, I was building XML digital signature as a, as a developer to I was in QA to I was the CISO to I was a GM running security products. Like no one, no one had a vision and no one had a direction that they were, that they were going in. And one of the things that I, that I found was that very few companies cared about security sort of as a core value. And when I talked to Salesforce, without me even prompting, they said, you know what, since day one, trust, customer trust has been one of our core values and security is a major component of that. And when I joined, you know, they were very clear in saying, I, you know, I don't necessarily know exactly what we need to do, but I know why we need to do it. And I know it's a top value for the company and we need to invest more in it. So we need you to come in and help us build that out. And that was great. I was sold at that point. I was like, here's a company that the top executives are saying this. And it's not like, it's not, we need to hire a dev to build, you know, feature X to meet customer demands. It's like, you know what, this is something that as a company we value deeply and we need you to help explore that and expand that out through, through the entire company. That's, there's so much, I think like visionary thinking um, that I'm hearing from Salesforce at that time. Do you think, because you know, you were getting very different responses from many other companies in the Bay Area, what do you think made it different for Salesforce? Do you think it was the personalities of the executives? You know, were they getting hacked and were they suffering consequences? Do you think there's something inherent to being a SaaS company that makes trust really important? I mean, what do you think, what do you think made the difference? Why Salesforce? Why did they care? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think there was two primary reasons. So number one, uh, you know, when you're an early SaaS product, I, use, I usually use the term easy come, easy go. So it's easy to onboard, it's also easy to leave. So if you're doing things that is eroding at your customer trust, it's not so hard for them to just cancel the contract and move on to something else. You know, I'm gonna download my data, I'm gonna push it somewhere else, and then I'm done. It's a little bit harder to do that on Salesforce nowadays because there's so many different feature sets, but when you're early, you absolutely have that problem. So that's number one, is that they recognize that, that it's like, okay, if, if it's really easy for people to, for, to get on my platform, if we screw up, like it's going to be really easy for people to get off. And I think the other thing is, is that historically, when we're talking about 
you know, cloud services and whatnot. People are just generally not trusting of it. And so early uh, SaaS companies, especially in the, in the you know, 2000s, early 2000s, it's like, we need to find a way to build that trust. And, you know, it's, it's a question of control. Most companies want control. And when you're using a SaaS-based service, you're giving up some level of control and saying, I trust you to do as good of a job on security uh, as I would, or even better. In fact, most of our customers expected us to do an even better job because they weren't controlling it. And from that regards, it was incredibly uh, useful for us both as a you know, selling point internally when we talked about security, because as you're trying to move up market into larger enterprises, it's like, okay, well, what, what are your expectations around security? And if large enterprise X comes back to you and says, here's what I expect, and you're not doing those things, and they're going to audit you, then guess what? If the, if the contract's big enough, you are going to do those things. Uh, and I think the, the founders of Salesforce, Parker Harris and, and Mark Benioff, got that really, really early on, that they needed to figure out how they built that trust and maintained that trust over time. And the other thing I would add is that it's not just security. When we, think about, when we talk about trust at Salesforce, it wasn't just security. Security was a large component of it, but it was also availability, it was quality, it was reliability, it was performance. And it was being honest in our customer transactions. So when we're talking about a contract or a salesperson is pitching the features we have, we want to make sure we're building that trust from the get-go. And I really admired Salesforce for you know, starting day one with that value uh, because not, that's not necessarily a lot of what a lot of companies, software companies in particular, were doing you know, in the early 2000s. Cool. I mean, it sounds like such a strategic move on behalf of the executives at the top to focus on trust. And, and do, you think, do you think that's had a big impact on Salesforce's success to date? I do, I do. I mean, Salesforce was one of the very first companies, and this is not a security thing per se, but Salesforce was one of the first companies to put a, you know, here's the status of our service. If we're down, we're gonna be the first people, you know, marching out front saying, you know, hey, we're down, we're working on it, here's what's going on. And at the time, when they originally were thinking about doing that, everybody thought that was the worst idea ever. Like, why would you talk about the fact that you went down and how much longer it's going to take? But as a staff service, you kind of have to talk about those things. And the same thing holds true around security, is that transparency becomes really, really important. And I think, I think it's actually been a really good selling point uh, from a security perspective, because your security posture as a SaaS company is an amalgamation of every customer's requirements. And when you're talking about selling and servicing customers from both across the world, but of many, many different shapes and sizes that have many different regulations they need, all of a sudden your secu their security requirements become your security requirements. And you need to find a way to make that work. And there's a certain democracy there around the security that you end up with that ends up being really, really good. So I think it helps Salesforce tremendously. I mean, when I originally joined contract conversations around security with large enterprises was really difficult and really painful. But over time, they've become you know, much, much less friction. And uh, you know, that was just a testament to the team and the effort that they put forth. And uh, you know, customers would oftentimes come to us and say, 
know, your security is actually better than my security. I feel better putting my data inside of Salesforce than I do holding it in my own internal memory. That's cool. I think there's something that makes sense about a strategic investment in security for a company that requires trust in order to be sticky. And then, you know, as you're talking about sort of expansion into global markets, I think the more success a company has, the more important security becomes, which I think just makes basic sense. Like the more you have to protect, the more you care about protecting that data. Um, very cool. Robert, I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, um, but we've just got a few minutes left. I, I want to hear about what you're working on today and particularly sort of your view on the role that psychology plays in terms of security and behavior, um, in terms of people's roles and backgrounds and values. Give us a little bit of a teaser in terms of how you're thinking about the work that you're doing today and what you're currently building. Mm -hmm. Sure, absolutely. You know, I think if you were to ask this question slightly differently, um, and you asked me what is the biggest lesson learned I've you know, over my time at Microsoft and Salesforce. And I'll sort of lead into what I'm doing today. But the biggest lesson learned is that for me, it's about the people. You know, it's the people on your team and how you support and grow them uh, and the relationships uh, that you build across different teams. You know, as much as I'd like to be able to wave a magic wand and have technology fix everything around security, it's just not going to happen in my lifetime. And it's not that difficult today to come in as a security leader or a CISO and get a big budget. Now, some people may argue with me, but if a company cares about security and you say, here's my outline for what I think we need to do, uh, you know, you should be able to pull in that budget to be able to get it done if the company really cares. Now, it wasn't the case back when I started, but nowadays I see it happening more often. But if you blow that money on technical solutions that impact your company getting stuff done or it doesn't align with the culture or the priorities of the company, you've already lost. So you've got to think about running a security team in the same way you run effective product teams, by spending a lot of time listening to your customers. And in security teams, that means spending time listening to your devs and other internal teams, as well as your potential customers as well, um, external customers. And that was sort of the, you know, that lesson learned for me of like, how do we engage with people was one of the starting points for me, uh, starting the company I'm at right now, Elevate Security. And what we're doing is, you know, when we, when we were at Salesforce, we saw a lot of bad training and we're like, how do we engage people? And we looked at best practices and we saw people sending out videos and the videos were like these 60 minute do's and don'ts around security, typically followed by a quiz question at the end. And it really wasn't engaging. Like if you, if you were thinking about like, hey, as a starting point, how do I find a way to engage my people? Do you say, let me send them a video that they hate and make them take a quiz at the end? Now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that, right? Like, that makes zero sense at all. So we sort of took a step back and based on some things that we had built at Salesforce, we're building a cloud-based platform that measures, motivates, and enables employees around security behaviors, such as phishing, reporting, password hygiene, and more. And if we take a, look, if we take a step back and we look at it from a psychology perspective, you know, we need to ask the question first of, like, what do we want to achieve? We, like the common thing I hear from people is, well, we want employees to be better at security. And we say, what does that mean? Well, that means being better at achieving certain outcomes, like 
don't click on phishing links as much, report security incidents more, you know, don't download malware, use better passwords, don't reuse passwords, a number of things like that. But if we then take a step back and we think about it purely from a, you know, a, a psychology perspective and we think about what are the components of behavior change, I'm gonna reference a Stanford uh, researcher called BJ Fogg, he says there's three things. Number one is motivation. I need to know, I need to get you to care. Number two is ability. I need you to know how to do something or I need to make it easier for you to do. And number three is a trigger. I need to remind you to do something at the right time. And the idea being that if you have all of those three things together at the same time, that's when behavior change changes happens. And that's what we're building. We're building a security behavior change platform that focuses on the motivation, ability, and triggers in line and in context to help employees exhibit better security behaviors. That's incredible. I, I think it's so cool that when you think about your biggest lessons learned throughout your career in security, you find that it is about the people. Certainly, this podcast is like all about the people. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for spending the time with me, spending the time with our listeners today to share a little bit about both your experience as well as your insights. Uh, this has been so much fun. Thank you, Robert. Same, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.